Well, good afternoon. How's everybody doing? Good? Yeah? Cool. Um, it's awesome to be here together uh, uh, again in this space. I actually had the privilege uh, and the honor of teaching at Riversgate this morning. Uh, they asked me to, to do that while their, their lead guy was out. Um, and so I was here this morning and got to stand up here and worship and teach the word. And it was really fun and really cool. But to look out and just to, to be with you, my family, it honestly is even cooler. And just the, the feel of the space and, and to be together, so fun. Um, if you're a guest this, mo- or this afternoon, my name is Dominic. Uh, and yeah, I just have the privilege of, of leading this church to, to follow Jesus uh, and the privilege of opening the word today. Um, so I'm going to do that. And, and as we start, I, I don't have any, you know, I usually like to start with a story or something to kind of get, get you hooked, you know, keep you awake, but I don't. Um, so I'm just gonna we're just gonna jump in. Is that cool? You guys, everybody's kind of awake-ish, yeah, to jump in. Let's do it. I'm just be real honest today. Um, so here, here's what we're gonna do. We're, we're in a series called called Being Made New, and um, part of I think why I don't have something to really jump in and hook with is that uh, as of Friday, Thursday, Thursday, Friday, I, I had this all mapped out, and we had it mapped out a month ago, and and I had I had what was next in line. And again, just some conversations and just praying and re- doing some reading. And I felt like God was saying, you, know, you, you can't go to that one next yet. Because if you do, it actually really won't make sense. This won't make sense in terms of what this series, I think, God's wanting to do in our hearts and our minds as a community. And so um, I'm going to give you the review. And I'm going to give you what I thought I was going to talk to you about. And then I'm going to give you the new thing that we're, that we're going to talk about. And we're going to go from there. So in this series called Being Made New, for review, here's, here's where we've been. Um, and I'm going to just state it to you this way. I believe that being made new is possible because the love of the Father sent the Son into the world to become one of us. And we talked about that, that Jesus was fully God, fully man. And be, being fully man, he lived his life on this earth, filled and indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And because that's the way Christ lived, you and I have the capacity and ability to live that way also. Secondly, I would say, or we talked about that being made new is possible only through the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As you and I live filled and we walk in step, walk in line with the Holy Spirit as Christ did, uh, that you and I can be made new. Because Scripture is pretty clear that the work of transformation, the work of being made new, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. You and I cannot make ourselves new. The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit in conjunction with the love of the Father and the work that the Christ has done on our behalf. The Spirit is the agent of transformation in our lives. He is the one that makes us new. Then thirdly, I believe we talked about this, that being made new is possible when we identify and confess the areas in our lives where we are looking for life where there is no life, a.k.a. sin, and we choose to die to those things and live life in the light and in, in the Spirit. And that's what we talked about last week, and the, that's why the community of practice was on confession. And so as I was prepping all the last couple of weeks, uh, or all this week, um, up until Thursday night, Friday, um, what I thought we were going to be talking about was that being made new is possible as we choose to make faith-filled investments in our relationship with Jesus. Because you know, I've been telling you that uh, I want to make this really practical, talk very practical about what does it look like to be made new. And, and while all of this is that the process of transformation and being made new, well, it is the work of God. It is the work of the Spirit in our lives. There is a manner in which we are called to participate in it. You, you follow me? It's a work of grace. God does it, but it doesn't mean we're off the hook. <laughs> we're, we're called to be 100% dependent and 100% responsible. 
You do the math on that. It doesn't work out, but that's what Scripture calls us to. 100% dependence and 100% responsibility. And so there are ways in which we make investments of faith in our relationship with the Lord. And that's where I thought we were going to go, but we're not going there. Because I don't, I don't think we're supposed to jump there yet. But what I, I believe God wants us to look at tonight, and at least maybe it's for my own heart and mind, um, would be this. That being made new is possible, I believe, when we embrace three lived perspective, perspectives that are necessary for our spiritual transformation. And here's what those three perspectives are. And these are perspectives that I, I, I try to live, live out of, live in myself. And I felt like I was saying, you've got to share these because we've got to continue to lay this foundation, this groundwork, as we're talking about the process of being made new, this process of um, progressive sanctification. And so here, here's the three perspectives. One is a deep sense of our sin, both personal and corporate, and knowing what the cross says about our sin. We need to have a, a lived perspective where we have a real deep sense of our sin, both personal and corporate, and we need to know what the cross says about our sin. The second lived perspective is this. We need to have an awareness of the reality of our longings and how the embrace of God helps us live with these. We need to be honest about the things that we're longing for, the things where, where there's, a, there's a, a kind of a, a disconnect, if you will, or a cognitive dissonance between what we, what we believe and what we desire, what we long for, and to be honest and go, I, those aren't met yet. I still have this longing. And sometimes, unfortunately, in Christian circles and in the church, it's not okay to live with longing. We have to put on these masks and pretend like, oh, I don't long for anything. I'm okay. I'm good. But I think a healthy, lived perspective would be an awareness of the reality of that and how the embrace of God lets us and actually invites us to live with a sense of longing, with, with even a sense of lack, if you will. So we'll talk about that. And the third lived perspective is this, a deep-seated conviction that all healing and growth come from grace. That all healing, all growth, all wholeness, all salvation, all of it is a work of grace. Okay? You guys with me? So we're going we're gonna to dive into those three things today. And the first one I want to look at is, is depth of sin. And in order to look at depth of sin, I want to go to a passage that we've already looked at in this series, um, Galatians 5. And I want to read it with you again and, and talk and kind of pick apart a couple things. Again, helping us to lay the foundation of going, being able to go and embrace the investments of faith that God calls us to uh, in this process of being made new. We're going to look at Galatians 5. And, and we're only going to do, actually, uh, Kyle, 16, to, 16 to, to 17 for right now. And, it's, and Paul writes and he says this. As he's talking about walking in the Spirit. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that we want to do. You guys, our view of sin, it has immense implications on our spiritual formation. If you and I think of sin as something that on one hand is small and menial and surface, our need or our desire or our longing for spiritual formation, my desire to be made due is, is going to be little. But if I have a, a, a real deep, a, a deep sense, a, a larger picture of sin, that will drive me then to have a larger need for grace, a larger desire even for transformation. Here's where I think Paul is going with this. He says, again, he says, walk by the Spirit. And we've talked about walk. We've talked about the fact that walk is one of the uh, most common commands and one of the most common 
analogies used to liken the Christian life. Walk, walk. Again, it's a journey. It's movement. It's active. And what Paul is saying here by talking about walk, he's saying that the Christian life, for us as disciples of Jesus, I believe what he, one of the things he's saying here as he's talking about this is, is that it's not a short sprint, but it's actually a long marathon. <laughs> it's not just a little brisk lunchtime walk. No, this is like, this is a long, 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 long walk. This is a long journey. And if you and I don't understand both the spiritual and the internal nature of the journey and the battle that we're engaged in, we're not going to neither have the desire to win the race that we're called to, nor are we going to have the ability, nor the capability, nor the longevity to do it. See, unless you and I see that we have a deep spiritual need that goes beyond simple trying harder cures, there's going to be little interest or motivation in seeking spiritual renewal and transformation. And I think Paul is saying that when he talks about this. He says, but I say walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I want to define flesh here for you a bit. This is, most of the time when you read flesh in the New Testament, this is what it means. This is what it's talking about. It's talking about the dwelling place of everything inside of a person that opposes God and his will. I think you could also substitute or liken it to call it the ego. The command center where all revolves around taking care of self preserving and protecting self-interests, getting honor and glory for self, and exalting self even at others' expense. And these desires of our flesh, they have endless demands and they make endless expectations of us. And they are powerful to the point, Paul says here, that they can keep us from doing the things that we want to do. Paul says in Romans, actually, he says similarly talking about the flesh, he says it's so powerful it can keep you from doing the things, or make you actually do the things that you don't want to do. So think of it however you like, but the flesh, this inner desire, this command center, it'll either compel you to do things you don't want to do, or it'll keep you from doing the things that you ought to do that you actually want to do. And Paul says this is constantly going on inside us, even as believers. This is going on inside of us as long as we're living on this side of of, of eternity. In humanity, we're constantly going to have this push and this pull of the flesh or living in the Spirit. And see, here's the thing. By human nature, we're actually subject to the appetites and desires of our flesh because we've inherited them through generations and generations and generations and generations of humanity. And so you and I, according to Scripture, are actually powerless to overcome this natural bent, this actual inclination, apart from Christ and His saving grace and the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate and renew us in our lives. Do you guys see how deep this, this, this is? Did you get the picture? Do you see what I'm talking about? I think I believe what Paul is talking about here. Sin is it's not a surface level thing. It's not a, a, a management thing. Sin in each of us, even though we are regenerate, even though we are new, because we still live life in this flesh, there still is an element to which sin, that flesh, that human nature, is still part of us. And it wants to do everything it can to derail you and I from walking in the Spirit and walking in line with the love and the grace and the goodness of God. See, and while it's right to attack our sin nature from the outside by putting up boundaries and discipline and and ceasing the destructive behaviors, it's far more important and it's necessary that there's an inside-out work that takes place to reduce the pull of sin in our lives. That's why Paul says, But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. 
And he goes on and he reads this list. He says, now the work of the flesh, they're evident. It's sexual morality, it's impurity, it's sensuality, it's idolatry, it's sorcery, it's enmity, it's strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like that. And he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think Paul gave us there an extensive list, an exhaustive list. But then he goes on to say what we need Again, it's not just this external and, and disciplining these rules. He goes, but what we need, because sin is such a, a deep-rooted, anchored issue within the heart and soul of humanity from birth, from creation, what we need is to be made new from the inside out, to be filled with the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit and so that the fruit of the Spirit would be produced in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there's no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He says what we need to do, again, is acknowledge how big sin is, how big of an issue sin actually is in the world, in community, in our own hearts and lives, and crucify it over and over and over and over again. I know he says it here in past tense. It has been crucified, but again, that's a, there, are, there are things that are, that are works that are done, that are definitive, can't be taken away, can't be removed, and now we're called to walk them out. Again, walk in the Spirit. Here's, here's, I want to give us something to think about as we consider our understanding of sin. And I want you to, you can go to, you can go to the slide that says understanding of sin. Here's, now as we talk about these, I want you to honestly just kind of either write it down or make a tally and go, okay, this is, this is how I work, this is how I do it. So understanding of sin. We can either understand and think of sin as external, individual bad things that I do, or individual bad things that are done towards me. Or we can understand sin as an internal orientation. A bent will. A sin-sick heart. Which one would you naturally think about when you think of sin? Do you think of it as just the externals and these are the things I've got to stop doing? Or do you have the understanding that it's an internal orientation of humanity? To resist, to reject the love of God and His order. Another understanding of sin Sin of commission, meaning the bad things that I do, things that I commit, and or omission, sins, sins of omission. There's things that I ought to do, love, mercy, justice, that are actually left undone. What I propose to you is that most often when we think of sin, we think, of off, we think most often of the sins of commission. And those are the things that we're trying to avoid and trying to, again, we put up boundaries and parameters and, and all of these things. We, we jump into classes, we do this, and that's all good. But the reality is, if you want to talk about, and I think, again, we need to, the depth and the depravity of sin, the real grip that it has on, on this earth and on humanity, apart from Christ, it's actually talking about sins of omission as well and acknowledging both. There's love, justice, mercy that ought to be done that is not. A third perspective of understanding that I think we need to have. Thinking of sin as just individual. I'm only responsible for my sin and my sin only affects me versus a communal corporate understanding in view of sin. That you and I are actually accountable to one another. That we have participated in the sins of our community and of our nation and of our history and those things ought to grieve us because those things are wrong and against those violate the heart and love of God as well. Again, what I'd propose to you, depending on your culture, your background, but what I'd propose to you is that majority, of, again, of people would think of sin as just individual. An understanding of sin, do I explain it away? I mean, I'm, I'm okay. Like, 
I'm doing better. <laughs> um, you know, it's been a while, actually, since I did that thing. Or what can I expect? I mean, I'm, I'm just so messed up because of this and that. And so, yeah, I did it, but it wasn't as bad as last time. Or like, I mean, they do it too, and so, you know, not a big deal. Or do we actually see sin for what it is? The, the pure rejection and violation of God's love. See, what, what I'd propose to you is this. That we need to begin to understand our sin more on that right side. That we need to understand sin as an internal orientation, as sin both of sin of commission and omission. That sin is, is communal, it's corporate. There's, there's, there's no two ways about it. And to see sin for, for what it is. And that when we do that, that actually opens the door for true, deep, inner transformation and allows us actually to engage, partner with God in His work of making us new. But as long as you and I say, ah, it's, it's just external things i got to deal with, and it's, and it's behavior management, or we say, oh, it's just I, I didn't do this and that's okay, but you know, we kind of deny these whole things that we know we should do, or it's just individual, or we, we, we have this posture of explaining stuff away, which for some reason, unfortunately, the church, I think the longer you're around church, the more you actually begin to do that for some reason, and it's really sad. I don't understand why we do that. Yeah, that, that, that those, those things, those four perspectives, those four viewpoints of sin, they're going to inhibit us and prevent us from, again, partnering and engaging with God in the process of being made new. We've got to understand the depth of our sin and just really how deep it goes. Here's the other, the other the sec- so second thing. Talk about we need to grow in awareness of the reality of our longings and how the embrace of God helps us live with these. I want to turn to Romans 8. And again, we've already looked at Romans 8 in this series already once, but we're going to go on to a next section of it. Paul talked about life in the Spirit and the inheritance that we have in Christ. And now Paul talks about in Romans 8 the future glory. And so in Romans 8, 18 to 25, Paul writes this, and he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Wait, as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. Paul, aren't we already adopted as sons and daughters? Paul, hasn't Christ already died and resurrected? And we already have a new identity as sons and daughters? What do you mean as we wait eagerly for this adoption as sons and daughters? For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You hear the language there of longing? The language of hope? The language of patience? You guys, I think if, again, we are to grow and be transformed, be made new the way that God wants to, we need to have a deeper understanding of sin. We also need to have a greater view, a more honest view of our yearnings and longings and how those affect our spiritual life and our spiritual formation. See, we believe that in, in this book, in the Bible, 
that what's laid out for us is the story of all of history. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation, or new creation. And I believe that actually the Bible, what it paints for us, is this picture of humanity as a thirsty and homesick people with deep, deep longings. And we'll do almost anything we can to satiate those, those longings and those thirsts. All throughout history, you read, all throughout the Bible, you read, you read stories of that. See, what Scripture paints for us is this picture that every person is broken, every person is thirsty, every person is longing for God. We're longing and desiring for Eden, for the creation, or we're longing and we're desiring for the new creation, the new heaven and earth that is to come. Very, very few people in Scripture were content in their current place in, in history and in time. And you, you and I might admit that as well. We long for something far greater, far more. What we long for is eternity. Ecclesiastes actually says that God created everyone with eternity in their hearts, meaning with this longing for eternity, this longing for God that actually only can be filled and satisfied by God himself. See, everyone in the story within Scripture is broken, thirsty, longing, but only some come to this place of Psalm 63.1 that declare this. Oh God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. In verse 3, because of your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you alone. So I want to be real clear. The gospel does promise deep transformation for those who follow Jesus in this life. It does. It's true. I've experienced it. Many of you have experienced it as well. But what the gospel already also reminds us because of this grand story, this grand narrative, is this. That there's always going to be points of brokenness, sin, and rebellion in our lives this side of eternity. And because that's true, you and I are always going to have longings. We're always going to have places and spaces that feel like there's a gap. There's going to be a cognitive distance between what I believe things, the way things should be, and the way things then actually are. James Wilhoy, in a book on spiritual formation, wrote it, this, wrote it this way. He said, An essential discovery in the spiritual life is the recognition that life, this side of Eden, is difficult, that it, that it never measures up to our expectations, and that our attempts to fix this disquiet simply do not work. Until we come to this recognition, we will live under the illusion that our restlessness is situational. Our natural inclination is to blame our spiritual ennui on the stresses and deprivation of the moment. It takes courage and grace to see it for what it is, a chronic ache at the core of our being. If we do not see the longing as given, we will tend to treat it with the if-only cure. This strategy assumes that our spiritual restlessness can be placated by a change of circumstances. If only I had a new job. If only I had him or her as a friend. If only I found the right church. The list of if-onlys is limitless, and sadly, many Christians have lists as long as their secular neighbors, but their lists are just spiritual. Because the reality is we live in a culture and we live in a world of quick fixes. We live in a culture and we live in a world of denial. Masks, fake it till you make it. What Scripture calls us to, though, is an honesty about our longings, about our desires, about these gaps, coupled with hope. And this allows us to live with optimistic brokenness. 
Not fateful denial. Not just some like idyllic sense. No, but a reality both of the depth and the depravity of sin and the reality of longings, unfelt, unmet needs in my life. See, you guys, and without a hopeful, receptive spirit that's actually born through brokenness, you and I are going to, again, have little interest in deep spiritual formation. We'll just keep looking for quick fixes. We'll keep looking for life where there is no life. And it'll be a spinning cycle until we can be honest about the longings that we have. Jesus, if you remember in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he was okay with longings. He acknowledged them. He actually said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for more than exists in this world. Blessed are those who are honest about their longings and even though they are in Christ, they still have longings. They still find themselves with things in this world that do not satisfy them. They've got a longing for something greater. Blessed are those people that are true and honest about that. Why? Because they will be satisfied. They will be satisfied. They will experience the satisfaction that comes through hoping in the Lord. Not quick fixes and other things, not denial, but no, honest about my longings. And so here, here's a question. Similar to looking at sin and thinking, which, which side do I stand on? Here's a question. I actually don't think I made a slide. I'm sorry. But do you as a person, do you sense your longings as deep thirsts that only God can begin to satisfy? Or again, do you think your longings are just situational and circumstantial? And if I could just do this, then I'll be okay. If I end up there, then I'll be okay. If this pans out, that's going to be super. Or can you be honest and go, no, 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 like this longing, this ache, (laughs) this ache, it's deep. It's far deeper than that. And there's actually nothing in this world that's going to satisfy this. Here's here's another question about longings. And again, unfortunately in the church, I think sometimes we think, oh, once you're a disciple of Jesus, and if you're maturing in your discipleship, you're going to be a person without any longings. Because you're going to be whole in Christ. And while I believe that's true, that we are whole in Christ, we can, again, can put this, these masks on and pretend like we, we, like we don't have unmet needs, we don't have these longings. So do we think of our desires for wholeness and for holiness, do we think that those should just disappear for those who are mature in Christ? Or that we can take care of them in our own efforts? So again, either one, either not acknowledging the depth of the longing and the insatisfaction, the unsatisfaction that we find in this world, that's going to cause us to not be spiritually transformed. Or if we, again, don't acknowledge the deep sense and believe that only God can fulfill it, but think I can just, oh, circumstance and this new thing or that new thing, try it out, next fad, that's going to fulfill this longing. If we jump that way, that's going to, again, disconnect us from the process of spiritual formation that God wants to do in our lives. Or, again, if we think falsely that, oh, if I, if I just, my discipleship, if I'm just more mature, or if we judge people, oh, they'd be more satisfied if they were more satisfied in Jesus. They wouldn't have those longings if they were mature like me. No, I think more maturity would be to say, no, I, I'm, 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 I'm growing in my discipleship with Jesus and I still have longings. Why? Because the thing that I'm most created to long for and desire is to see Jesus face to face. And that's not going to happen this side of eternity. And so until that day happens, I am going to be human and broken and have deep, 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 deep longings in this flesh that only can be fulfilled by God. And so I can stop searching for the next quick fix and know this longing is only going to be fulfilled by you, Lord. And he will do it in certain ways, spiritually and even physically in different ways here on this earth. So then the third thing, look at a true depth of sin, be honest about longings. The other thing is a conviction of grace. The conviction 
a deep-seated conviction that all healing, all growth only comes from and by grace. Ephesians 2. Paul writes, and he says this. He says, For it is by grace through faith. You at one time were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. There's that verb again, walking in sin, walking in death. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of, of, of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. Again, that, that deep-seated central place where our ego, our, our self-interest drives everything. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Again, talking about the fact that by nature, every human being is born into sin. And it's deep because it's inherited from generation to generation by generation by generation. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. See, in talking about grace, and talking about and remembering that that, that, that our salvation is a work of grace. Again, I think probably, any, any, would anybody doubt that or anybody, anybody want to wanna, wanna fight against that one? I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. But I think when we begin to talk about though our spiritual transformation and the process of being made new and the way that we think about ourselves and look at ourselves and the way we think about and look and, and even judge one another, we often don't view it in light of grace. What I'd propose to you again is that when I say the word grace to you, most, of, most people would go, oh yeah, I need grace for justification. And that's been done for me and I'm justified by grace. And now I've got to go work this thing out. There's just certain things I've just got to do on my own because God helps those who helps themselves. And I've just got to do this. He, he's left me. God's quiet. He's not talking to me on this one. I can't see him. I don't know where he is. His word doesn't speak directly to this thing. I'm wrestling with this and I, 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 just, I just got to do it on my own. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. You guys, we are saved by grace and we are continually saved by grace. One of the things that's interesting about the word grace that, that's, word, that's used in the New Testament, the Greek word for grace, it shows up more than 100 times in this New Testament. How many times do you think that it refers to principally the act of justification? Take a guess. Shoot some numbers. How many? Less than 10%. A hundred times the word grace is used. A hundred times. Less than 10% it's talking about justification. Every other time, you know what it's talking about? Sanctification. Progressive sanctification. The ongoing process of being made new. The ongoing process of becoming what we already are through that justification in Christ. The ongoing process of walking out by grace through faith the things that God has already done graciously and lovingly and mercifully and miraculously for us by sending His Son to die, rise again, and ascend and sit now at the right hand reigning and ruling for us. 
You guys, we, we have to have a deep-seated core conviction, again, not just of the depth of our sin, be honest about our longings, but that it is grace alone that saves us and continually saves us. That I need grace every single day. I need grace moments and moments and moments inside of every single day. If not, if I do not cultivate this openness to, to God's help, this openness to the grace of God in my life in spiritual and in practical ways every single day. You know what? Again, I'm going to close myself off to this process of being made new. Because I'm going to think, I've got to do this on my own. This is my responsibility now. Or, or that's one side of like thinking. The other side of thinking would be, oh, I got this. I mean, he got, of course, yeah, Jesus saved me. It was by grace that I'm saved. But I wasn't actually even that bad. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home. I mean, my mom and dad, they gave. They, they were missionaries, whatever it is. You know, you, you hear me? That's the other side of foolishness that we'll fall on. And we'll go, oh, no, I'm, I'm good. I got this. Because what he saved me from actually wasn't that bad, so I can do all the rest on myself too. No, 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 no. You guys, we're saved by grace through faith. This is not a work of our own. This is a gift from God so that no one can boast in it. Not the saving and not the transformation part. Not the one-time-for-all work and not the ongoing work. It's by grace alone, and we can't forget that. Again, or what we're going to do is we're going to go, oh, I don't, I, don't, I don't really need to be made new that much. And we'll cut ourselves out of and push ourselves away from the invitation of God to be made new by His grace at work in our lives. His ongoing work of saving us by grace through faith. You guys, we, we need... <laughs> We need in our lives actually to continually live as needy and receiving people. And again, as I say that, some, we, a lot of I, myself, we cringe. Because our culture does not encourage us to be needy nor, nor to be receiving people. We like to be and expect to be and educate ourselves to be the givers, the ones who help those who have the need. I give, you receive. Yeah, it's good that way. Because I don't have any longings. And I actually wasn't saved from that much. And sin, it's just the things that I do. It's not, it's not my heart condition. I mean, come on. No, 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 no. You guys, we need to continually posture ourselves as needy and receiving of God's grace. Because God's grace only came to us in the beginning through humility, and it only continues to transform us and make us new through humility, through this posture of saying, I'm needy, I'm broken. Sin is deep-rooted, and yes, by the grace of God, I've been transformed, and I've been saved from a lot, and I am made new, but if I'm honest, there's still stuff in there. It still feels pretty dang strong some days. And by the way, I'm not fully satisfied. I'm not. I got longings. There's ways in which I just, and, and, and I've searched, and I've tried, and I've tried this, and I've tried that, and this new shop opened, and that fad, and all these things, the shoes, man, it's great, but if I'm really honest when I get home by myself, I'm not satisfied. I'm longing. I'm longing for something far more, far greater, far deeper. You guys, and I believe Scripture calls us to that posture. And that doesn't, again, that doesn't negate the amazing salvific work that God has done for us in Christ. But we can actually experience this more wholly and fully when we embrace these three perspectives. The depth of my sin, the reality of my longings, and just this, to my core understanding, I'm saved only by grace continually. Here's a question for you. From the time that you 
we're saved by grace through faith. Has the cross in your mind grown larger or has it gotten smaller? Here's what I mean. Let me give you, put up these two pictures, Kyle, if you will. See, over time, our perception of our sin is on that bottom and the perception of God's holiness, God's grace, God's love, God's favor in our life is on the top of the dotted line. Because I think what often happens is that when we're saved, we come to this place where the cross is huge in, in, our, in, our, in our minds and our hearts and our lives when we're first saved. Because again, we just realize that, I, man, except by the grace of God, I'm tr- I, was, I was dead. I was dead in my tracks. I was struggling. But unfortunately, through the lies of the enemy, through the lies of culture, through the pressing in on, on, on the, the things of the world, and again, the reality of just the tangling of the flesh, over time, unfortunately, I think what can happen is that the cross grows smaller. Through circumstance, through whatever it is. But on the other hand, I think, you guys, if we live, again, with these three perspectives, it can be the opposite. That, that what happens is, if, if my perception of sin grows... If I really believe the gospel, then guess what? The perception of grace has to grow along with it. If I can be honest, even in the fullness that I have in Christ, that I have longings, then guess what? Then the perception and the reality of God's grace in my life grows. If I can be honest again by the fact that I've been saved by grace through faith and I'm only transformed by grace through faith, I can't do anything to transform myself. I literally can't. It's a work of God's grace. It's a work of the Spirit within me. Again, that leaves room where I've got to go, God, I need you. And what that does is it makes the cross grow bigger in our eyes and in our minds and in our hearts and in our conversation and in our community and therefore then in the world in which we're called to go out and share the the power and the goodness of the cross in. But that will only happen, you guys, if we embrace these perspectives, these realities and allow ourselves to honestly engage in the process of being made new by the grace of God. By His grace alone. And yes, in weeks coming, we'll talk about ways, again, I think we are called to posture ourselves, position ourselves to partner with that work of grace, to put ourselves in a position where we can receive that grace. But I felt like God was saying all that stuff, moving on and talking about some of those engagements, they're nothing unless we talk about this and have, 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 a, have, an, have an understanding of this. And I don't think so highly of myself as a communicator, whatnot, that now that I've said this, you guys all got it and we're all good. So come on Wednesday to the community of practice and let Joel talk you through it. <laughs> and one another. No, but we've got to continue to engage this. You guys hear me? We've got to continue to embrace these perspectives and not just embrace them, but actually live them out. Grace. Grace. Here's the thing. I think seeing our sin for what it is, too, it need not lead us to despair, guys and gals. If you're sitting here feeling despair, that was not my intent, and I don't think that's God's intent either. I think the devil's trying to lie and, and, and twist something in you. Looking at the depth and the depravity, the reality, the weight of sin in our lives, it need not lead to despair. Why? <laughs> because the, if I really believe the gospel, it's an invitation to spiritual liberation. It's an invitation to acknowledge, I can't do this on my own, and so I need a Savior. And not just a little one, but a big one. Not just a little Jesus, but a big, strong, powerful, mighty Jesus. 
I don't need just a little bit of grace. I need an ocean of grace. <laughs> Let me close with this. Um, and this will lead us to, to, to worship and to communion. Um, Isaiah 55. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And um, it's titled, The Compassion of the Lord. And this is God talking to the people of Israel but I believe it applies to us because he's talking to them in a season where when they're wandering and all this stuff and it applies to all those things, understanding depth of sin and the need for grace and, and our longings. And, and God writes this through the prophet Isaiah to his people and he says this, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? 